Hello and welcome back to OT and Chill, all things occupational therapy with me, Kwaku. Today, in this episode, I sat down with Dr. Wayne Sherwood to talk about the Fauna Dutois model of creative ability. It's a model I've been interested in for a while since university, since I was actually first introduced to it by um, Dr. Sherwood. Um, I was very lucky and fortunate to be taught by her during my first year of studying at London South Bank University. Um, I've always admired the model. Um, it was used in my uh, previous um, role as a sports technician in a mental health uh, rehabilitation unit. I really enjoyed learning about it. I'm really not an expert by any means, so I thought I'd get the expert herself to talk about it. But during the episode as well, we'll talk about her her life in the occupational therapy. Um, just like I do with any of the guests that come on, I'll, we discuss why, the reasons behind why she became an occupational therapist, um, and just about her insight into the, the profession in general. So I hope you enjoy it, and let's get right into it. Hello guys, I'm here back again with OT and Chill, All Things Occupational Therapy. Today I'm very lucky to be joined by a special lady in Occupational Therapy, Dr. Wim Deserwood. Um, glad to introduce yourself. Yeah, hey, quirky. <laughs> hello, hello. Yeah, I'm Dr. Wendy Sherwood. I'm not used to saying the doctor thing. I, I, I was thinking about it before I, uh, I was like, how, how, how should I call it? What should I yeah, say? Yeah. But, no, yeah. but you are, you are. So, I, so, I've yeah. earned it, so yeah. I'm going to use it. Yes. All right, so I'm um, Wendy Sherwood. I'm a mental health occupational therapist. And um, I work for myself now, purely. And I'm my main passion and my main work is around an uh, OT practice model called the Werner de Toy Model. Oh, amazing. So that's one of the main things that we're going to be talking about today. But I also really want to find out about you as a person because I think you've done a lot um, for occupational therapy so far, in my opinion anyway. Um, so I just wanted to find out a little bit about you because sometimes the person makes <laughs> the role rather than the role and everything you're taught makes uh, the person. Um, so can you, how long have you been an occupational therapist? I qualified in 1991. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I know for people your age is a long time ago. Um, so what's that? 28 years? 28 years. 28 years, 28 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gosh, wow, that's, that's a long time. So I was talking to the last, uh, my last podcast, I was talking to a guy called Keir Hardin, and then he said he's been in occupation for approximately 20 years. Now I always admire people that manage to stick out for uh, <laughs> that long. There must be something about it, or there must be something about you that's still like it. Because I'm like thinking now, if I'm still in the profession in 20 years' time, I'll be, I'll be so happy. But you just sometimes you don't know what the, the next step is. Um, but yeah, so that's 2020, that's a long time. I yeah. Think. You still enjoying it? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I am winding down a bit now. Okay. But yeah, I do. I've, it's the best job that I could ever have found. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. really nice to hear. Um, so what made you want to become an occupational therapist in the first place? I found OT completely by chance, which I think happens to a lot of people. Okay. So. Growing up, and certainly as a teenager, all I wanted to be was an artist. That's okay. whether it was textiles or painting or fashion, or but it was something creative in that sense. 
I was good at art at school. Um, I did my GCSEs as they were then, and I stayed on and did an A-level mm. with the hope of being able to go to art school. And I managed to get a place in the art school that I wanted, which is in Birmingham, which is where I'm from, mm. called Bourneville Art College by Cadbury's Chocolate Factory. Oh, right next to And uh, oh, I was so thrilled when I got into that school. And then when I got into that school, I realised I really wasn't that good at it. Oh, Not no. as good as my peers. And I was lost, really, in that sort of social, cultural... Um, context I really struggled anyway I applied to go to art to do an art degree but my heart wasn't in it so I didn't actually take up an art degree place and went on the dole I ended up on the dole because I didn't know what to do so how, how, how old was it was this just straight after um, school like college um, so like I would have been 18 when I went to art college so I'm around about 20 now okay. 2021 20, so I found a job in the job centre, just 18 hours a week, I think it was, doing graphic design for a magazine that went out as a free publication to people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So there's only a little small office with about five of us in. And the person who usually did the interviews was sick. So they said, when do you go and do this interview? <laughs> it's an occupational therapist at the Disabled Living Centre, as they used to be called mm-hmm. then, in central Birmingham, which is a place where they're just full of all the equipment and people can go and try out stuff. So I went and I said, what's an occupational therapist? And I saw all the equipment and she told me all about it and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And she said, just go and have a few visits. So I did a learning disability place visit and mental health and a physical and it was actually the physical one that grabbed me because I went to a burns unit and I couldn't quite believe that an occupational therapist was working with people with burns I was just fascinated it was an OT called Ruth Garner Mm -hmm. which some of the older OTs listening will will know Um, and that was it I was sold so I had to go back to night school do some more exams because I didn't have any sciences I was rubbish at sciences I had to do another A level and then I got into what was then the Wolverhampton School of OT, which moved to Coventry. Okay. And okay. I was the last diploma year. Oh, so right. They, okay. So it turned into like a yeah. degree. Yeah. So yeah. completely by chance. Wow. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> that's so strange because from that, now you've developed such a passion for it, such an enthusiasm for it, and then you're doing what you're doing now. That's impressive because I suppose everyone, you hear a lot of people who don't may uh, may not know a lot about occupational therapy so actually if you do come across and there's something that you're interested in looking at your example you can do a lot with it if it makes sense because that's it's giving you a lot of opportunities i'm guessing mm, right. yeah loads no, that's good so what do you think your um, biggest achievement is to date that's i know it's a it's a, it's a massive question because you what, what do you think you've done in occupational therapy that you're you're most proud of See, that's a really interesting question because it depends what constitutes an, an achievement, okay. doesn't it? Okay. So the very first thing that comes to mind, which is probably probably one of the biggest events in my career, was in my very first job. Okay. I was a newly qualified Isle of Wight mental health acute, and an OTA from a, a different ward to me asked me if I would come into her pottery group because there was a client that she couldn't work out. And it was a client who, according to the notes, um, was uh, putting on paralysis. Paralysis down half one side of the body, uh, body 
elective mutism, which is, you know, choosing not to speak, mm-hmm. and it was all behavioural, and they were treating her on the ward in a very behavioural way. And I went in and saw her, and as she moved, I thought there's something very neurological. So I took her out, she couldn't speak, and I got a big piece of A, um, A3 paper and I put the alphabet on it, yes, no, don't know, repeat the question. And I asked her questions and with her non-paralysed side, she could spell out answers. Or, and through that, I basically did the assessment that you're trained to do mm. at, at, at college um, for people who you think have had a stroke. And I thought she's, she's had some kind of brain insult. So I went back and wrote it in the notes with a shaking hand, <laughs> this newly qualified OD, um, suggesting to the doctors that they'd got it completely wrong. Oh no. And then they took her immediately to have scans and then I didn't sleep all night and then the, when I went in in the morning they told me she'd had a massive, got a massive brain tumour wow. from one side of the brain to the other. So I went to see her, she was still on the ward and um, they obviously explained to her she was going to be moved to the right part of the hospital. And she just looked at me and spelt out on the board, thank you. Wow. And that look in her eye that said, thank you for saving me. It must have been a terrible experience for on, on that on that ward. Um, and I, I remember then thinking, if I don't do anything else good in my career, <laughs> this is worth it. So that's probably my greatest. Oh, that's amazing. That's a great, that's a fantastic story. But actually makes it, it makes you realise how important having different professions in in a hospital setting yeah. or any setting actually how important it is because no one else seems to have seen it and obviously your colleague asked you to come and yeah. assist her because you would have thought someone a nurse it's, someone would have spotted something like that but you've used a functional yeah. you've used an assessment that you yeah well, you were trained to use and it's and it's oh, yeah but I think I think any any time that I've worked with a client and felt I've understood him or her and enabled them to get their needs met, I think is the greatest thing. I think it's such a privilege that people will put their lives literally in your hands mm. and you've got the opportunity to do that. So I think that's always going to be the best thing about this job. Oh, that's, that's lovely. <laughs> made, me, made me think. I chose, I chose the right career path and that's, that's amazing. So um, you were a, a, a lecturer a, yes. um, and a course director for many, many years. Um, were, were you just that? Uh, I was at, bank or you over, over the no, I started well. out at uh, what was then the Essex School of OT, then mm. I came to Southbank mm. um, and I was course director just for one year. Mm. Okay, how do you, I don't know how much um, links you have with uh, universities now, but how do you think the uh, occupation therapy course studies training has changed over the years that you were a lecturer to now or even before, before that? Um, and is it for the better? <laughs> well, def- definitely since I trained, it's for the better. Yeah. I mean, the really the profession in the you know late eighties, uh, which is when I started training, was still a pretty young profession. Really, it's a much more developed profession now, and all that you learn about research and evidence, and you know the scope of OT um, in health well-being and wellness you know it's just so much bigger and better understood you've got much more clear theory and i think as a profession we understand ourselves much better so that's the main development i don't know about education 
Um, I think education, much like the profession, gets pushed and pulled around depending on what are the trends at the time. Mm. Um, and I think we lost our way for a while. Certainly oc- occupation and activity dis- really went to- out of programmes. I don't know if you remember your first module I took. Yes, you. yes. And we actually did activity. Yeah. And actually, you know, programmes lost their way with that. But I think it's more back in the programmes now. I, I think so. I suppose when I'm nearing the end of my studies, um, we did think more about actually using activity as, as your basis of assessment and occupation and mm. getting people to do things that they, they do every single day, but you just use your observational skills, watch how they do it. And then you find out how you might be able to assist. And I, for sure, now when I'm at work and I know it's a different, uh, I'm looking at the people from an occupational therapy lens, but I'm still, I still think about them in a psychologically informed way. Um, but I always try to do activity because actually, when someone's doing activity, you, the way you talk to them, the way they're doing it, the way they interact with everyone else around you can give you loads of the that psychological um, mm. uh, from thinking that I need to like a right formulation or whatever. So I, I love doing activity um, and I hope that a lot of occupational therapists live in not in, maybe not in a certain island but somewhere a bit different like maybe, maybe in a acute hospital that you can do something um, to help people uh, achieve whatever they want to achieve mm. their goals I suppose. Um, so what, what like being a course director, being a lecturer, being a, a doctor of occupational therapy, um, what are your hopes for the future of the profession? What, what do you, what, what, how, what, how do you see the profession in maybe next 10 years, 15 years? I really don't know. I guess that's partly because I'm not really in education so much okay. now. But um, I don't know. I think the, ch- the challenge for occupational th- therapy profession is still to make to find, not find its voice, but express its voice. I would really hope that the profession becomes more visible to the public. And the only reason it's not is that it's chosen not to. So what I mean by that is, you think about all the changes that are happening in society, even with things like social media, the changing environment, the amount of of children in this country that are, are poor, and in deprived states and you know don't go to the park got nowhere to play is that i really think occupational therapists should be researching the parts of society so let's say children mm-hmm. and the impact on children of not being able to play outside let's say and then publishing that research not just in the british journal of ot where we just end up talking to ourselves but publishing in a journal that's going to be more widely accessible and then writing about it in the broadsheets okay because you open the paper and someone has written something that you can as occupational therapists we can look at and say yeah well we already knew that and you were only saying things that we actually know but at least they're saying it okay we're not and i really think we should be we should be really putting ourselves forward and particularly writing in um in the broadsheets about key aspects of people's occupational lives, particularly with things like people getting displaced globally. Mm. You know, we can predict that there's going to be huge movement of people for environmental reasons as well as war reasons. And what's that going to do to societies or for those individuals? We should be writing about that stuff. 
I'm really interested in what your opinion is, why people don't write about it. Why are, are we like, is it from your experience in uh, doing your own um, doctorate or doing um, uh, like teaching students, is it something that we, we're not, it's not forced on, no, not even forced, that's the wrong word, encouraged a lot to do from when we're leaving universities, one of those things that we should be trying to do. I don't know, I really don't know. I think every single occupational therapist needs to think about that and answer it for themselves. Okay. But maybe we've just got used to the character, the characterisation of being meek and quiet and overlooked and mm. nobody understands us and and we just stay like that. I don't know. I suppose you hear, well, when we go to like the conferences and you, you hear our... Um, uh, Executive director, chair, chair, to be loud and proud and shout oh. about it. I suppose it's, it's about the individual characters, <laughs> individual person's um, ability to be able to shout about. Or oh, actually, are you confident in the profession? Do you understand the profession to go and write about it? So that when you get questioned <laughs> by someone who doesn't know occupational therapy or other professions, then you're able to answer it. Maybe that, that's the aspect I'll be interested in what other people think about that, actually. Um, so, going back to what you're doing right now, you're um, the executive director, am I right? Of I'm, the... not, I'm not actually Oh, anymore. okay, okay. It's not been announced officially. No. <laughs> oh, okay, well, yes. you're making it official. No, no, it's okay. Uh. It's okay. I know that the lead director, who is Louise Jeffries, okay. um, will be making that announcement soon. It's fine for it to be on tape. So, yeah, so I've just resigned as, as executive director, but I've been involved with that. Well, I set up that foundation. Um, it originally started as uh, as an interest group in 2005, 2006. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm interested in what's, what's behind your decision to step down? Is it because you've, um, you've put the hand over to someone else or you've done, you think you've taken as far as you can take it at the moment? Um, there's a range of reasons. I mean, I stepped down as lead director because I really wanted somebody else to take it over. Yeah. And it's not healthy for people to be constantly relied on, reliant on one person yeah. and other people can have new ideas and take the foundation in a different direction. So I stepped down from that but I stayed on as, as exec director just to keep an eye on things yeah. and I also found it quite difficult to let go of it, it's been yeah. such a big part of my life. But I'm now moving towards retirement, okay. I've actually starting to come to the decision that being an occupational therapist isn't so important to me anymore. Okay. I actually want to do other things with my life, and so that's why I'm drifting away. That's 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 fair enough. That's <laughs> fair enough. Um, and when you were were the um, executive director, mm. what what kind of things were 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 you um, responsible for? What kind of because that's a that's a leadership that's quite a leadership role, which is. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in leadership roles. I hope, I'm, I hope to get someone to come and talk about it because I think leadership in occupational therapy or leadership in healthcare is very important. Yeah. Um, well, the lead director is more of a leadership role. So that really is having a vision for the foundation, understanding the needs of occupational therapy profession and um, health and social care context and helping to develop the model of creativity in a way that's going to meet those needs. Mm. So it's a huge responsibility and you actually become the face of the model because 
um, unlike, well, you know, Moho doesn't have Gary Kielhofner anymore, but, you know, Gary Kielhofner uh, led the development of Moho for many years, um, whereas Vona du Toy has been dead since the 1970s. So there's never really been someone or a group of people, unlike the Canadian model, there's a group of people yeah. still that uh, lead that, are responsible for that. So um, for the Vernon Toy model of creativity, the foundation is really the face of the model, and it's a big responsibility to get the information accurate, to be able to answer people's questions, to be able to encourage research, to stimulate practice development keep keep abreast of what's going on in practice and all of that but that's what that's what it was okay as a or is as a lead as a, an exec i just kept an eye on things you just kept an eye on things. <laughs> <laughs> okay let's we, let's talk more about the model then um, okay I, 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 i'm not an expert i wouldn't <laughs> i've learned bits and pieces about it but i really really like the model myself i really um I like, I like what it stands for um can you tell me a little bit uh, for people that don't know anything about it, what, what is its foundations, um, why you think it's important? Okay, so it's, um, the, first, the first thing to say about it is it's, called, it's a practice model. And I know there's lots of debate and discussion about what's the model and what's what. But basically, my understanding of a, a practice model is it's practice or, or dynamic theory, which basically says... Um, if you do X, then Y will happen. Yeah. So it links one thing to another. Um, and that's what the mod, this model does. Unlike a more conceptual model, which explains human beings, um, or occupational human beings, mm -hmm. only. And then you have to go away and make sense of this Goodness. and work out what's the best thing to do. So the Venutoy model creativity describes people in developing degrees or changing degrees of motivation and then ability mm. in terms of functional occupational performance. And it describes how we grow up from babies into children, into adults, into older adults, and how what we're motivated for change and how our abilities change. Mm -hmm. um, and in that process, it, it explains key aspects of our functioning or occupational performance that makes it possible for us to have particular motivation and to be able to do certain things. So those things are, those, those occupational performance components are things like your motivation, being able to put in effort, being able to understand materials and objects and people and relate to those, being able to understand a task and do it. Um, being aware of the norms or the right or correct way of doing things. And there's a few others. And those are the key aspects. And as we grow up, some of those aspects start to develop, but they're, but they're only just starting. Then they get stronger and more developed, and then they get very well developed. And, and the more developed they become, the greater your ability. And with greater ability, you've got the potential to do more challenging things and your motivation changes. Okay. Um, so that's basically what it is. Can I ask you about maybe um, the the name of it? Yeah. Um, obviously you didn't come up with it, so. Uh, but I can imagine maybe people that don't know the profession so much. Um, hmm. When you say the model of creative ability. Yeah. The language that creative do people often get? Have you come across people that often get confused about creative ability because 
you know, when we talk about creativity, the first thing that comes to people's mind is like uh, crafts, arts, and arts and, crafts and, and music, and, and yeah, yeah, arts, yeah, yeah <laughs> things like that. So, has, has, has there been a bit of confusion around? Around that, I think historically there has, you know, which is inevitable because it is the word creative, and that's usually what people think of. But the term creative, if you are creative, it means that you have the ability to create something. Yeah. And creating something is bringing about something new yeah. for you. Yeah. Might not be new for someone else, but new for you. So it could be that you've made, made something tangible, different. Mm -hmm painted a picture you've never painted before or you've learned a skill you've never had before or you've gained knowledge that you haven't had before but you've brought about something new you've created something yourself and for that to happen requires two things it requires your motivation to do something and your ability to do it so it's through the combination of your motivation plus your ability okay so you can be motivated to do it but your ability might not match it Yes. Well, you might have the ability, but you're not motivated yes. to do it. Yes. Okay. I've got the ability to do lots of things, Quakey, <laughs> and I've got absolutely no motivation to do it. Or I've got the motivation to do things, like have a PhD. Yeah. People think I'm academic. I'm really not. I was in the bottom of every class at school. Um, but my motivation was so strong. I was so determined to get that, that PhD. It nearly was the end of me. I've never worked so hard wow. and struggled so much. But my, my motivation was strong enough for me to develop the ability to mm. learn and, and, and achieve that PhD. Mm. So that essentially is your creative ability. It's your motivation combined with your, your functional skills is okay. your creative ability. See, I think that, that okay, it makes sense because um, I'm thinking about the clients I work with now. And it's like sometimes you ask to be wanting to do something in terms of behavior change. I know that's a little bit different, um, but the motivation, they, they've got the ability to do it. They've got yes. the cognitive ability yes. to do it, not argue with um, uh, maybe officers, not argue with people, not get into you, you can do it, yeah. but the motivation yeah. to do it is not, it's not there. And yeah. that we think that sometimes it comes that comes with maturity as well. Like just like you said, when as you grow up, um, mm. from child, adolescent, uh, early adulthood, and mm. you go and you can have these mm. different types of thinking. Yeah. Um, and the same with action as well. Same with everything. When mm. <laughs> if you haven't got the um, ability, physical ability to do something, run. 100 meters in 10 seconds, yeah. <laughs> you, you won't be able to do it. Um, yeah. But your motivation is still there to run. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's, that's a very good way to, um, quite a simple way to understand it. So that I suppose that it's not, it's not the main, um, would, you, would you say the, the main foundation? Yes, it? absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. okay, yeah. That's great. Now I understand it even better now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what, what, what are some of the advantages of? Uh, a patient therapist now maybe taking this model on board compared to other models or what 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 the benefits okay. if someone if someone just started and I said I've got a blank sheet yeah you can choose whichever model of practice yeah. that you <laughs> really use. Um well every model has to offer something different to the profession. So what this model offers that others don't, its unique contribution is understanding people in levels of creative okay. ability. That's that's its niche, really, um, which enables you to understand um, every client, every person that you come across. 
So for me, in mental health, working with clients who were floridly psychotic, uh, were looking at you, but you're not even sure whether they were really looking at you and could see you, you know, hallucinating, laughing to themselves, chaotic. I couldn't engage those people. And traditionally, and a lot of OTs nod when I talk about this, um, certainly in acute, you know, we're, we're waiting for the, hopefully the medication to take some effect and they stabilise and then they are more able to have a conversation with you as an occupational therapist and to do things. Yeah, um, but that means that they have to wait for for you to provide some occupational therapy. Whereas with this model, I now can now understand those people. I can see their level as to what level they are, and thinking about those occupational performance components like effort, understanding a task, understanding things, I can work out which one of those components is causing the main problems. Okay. And therefore I can adjust or um, what I offer, or I can grade what I offer so that it, it literally matches their level. It's pitched at their level. So I can offer them something that I think they're going to be motivated for, mm -hmm. because their level of credibility um, tells me something about what they're motivated for. And I can offer it within their skill set, so within their current abilities, so they can do something. And it's through that activity participation, engaging them and then being able to do something that you then start to help them recover their ability. Mm. I don't know any other model that helps, enables me to do that with anybody. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis, doesn't matter how severe the condition is, doesn't matter the age, I can work with anybody. So you, uh, 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 what I'm hearing is like, maybe when, especially in acute settings, when people come in and or some sort of multi actually I can't work with this person until they're settled. Yes. But now it, it can give occupational therapists like uh, more incentive, not incentive, that's the wrong word. But it like gives you the reasoning. You, <laughs> you can clinically reason what's going on and you can clinically reason what, you, what to offer and why. And this is where you see the practice theory happening mm. because the model says, well, if you do, for these people on this level, if you aim to do this mm. and you do that, so it gives you a guide as to what to do, mm. then you will see this result. Okay. And that is what happens. Okay. You see it happen in front of your eyes. Mm. You mm. can predict if I do this, offer this opportunity in this way, the client will engage probably in this kind of with these kind of skills and this kind of behaviour, and which should have um, an outcome like this. And that's what you see, and you see people change literally in front of your eyes. That's amazing. Now that I'm, I'm getting all these ideas in my head, <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking to myself because, like, I know it's different. Uh, I'm thinking people in a segregation unit uh, who are very. Like angry, upset about something, yeah. or maybe perhaps um, experience some mental health issues. Everyone is so scared <laughs> to yes. go yeah. near them because obviously, like, you know, no one wants to put themselves in danger. But actually, mm. this could possibly help you engage someone at, at some level of yeah. doing something. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter where they are because actually, when they come out of that state, then they'll be able to move up. Um, yeah, um, yeah. And, and there are lots of occupational therapists who have learnt the model, 
seen what it can do for clients, um, you know, in their one-to-one sessions or in their group sessions, you know, from their own experience, and have have felt it's important enough to share it then with other team members of the team. So then the whole team starts to work according to the person's level. And they start to realise that using seclusion or doing this or saying that or responding to clients in this way when they behave in such and such a way actually isn't helpful. Mm. According to the model, we ought to be approaching them in this way. And then they do that and it all just changes for the better for the client. So there are services that have literally been transformed and a lot of OTs and uh, will use that word. In fact, I visited a service yesterday, it's just a, a, a charity a horticulture project that works with people with uh, learning disabilities and they said it's just transformed everything Mm. everything works better the clients are better engaged we know better what we're doing we've got the clients have got better outcomes the carers understand things better Mm. it just enables you to understand people in in a different and for me a better way than I could do before and it gives me confidence and knowledge in terms of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And then I can see that the, the benefits to the clients is just so obvious. Yeah. On, on that point, um, you said you trained a, a lot of OTs um, to yeah. use this model. Why is there, why isn't there an even bigger uptake of the model if, if, uh, if people are um, reporting lots of positives about it? Or is it, are people scared of change or? I don't know. It, I don't know whether there's money not. or training. I, I don't know because there's a lot of there are a lot of trusts. Yes. You know when you say why isn't there a greater uptake? There's been a massive uptake. Hmm. Um, it's you know I don't know how old you are, Quaku, but you're still <laughs> young in my eyes. But I know I don't know if it seems a long time to you, but this model wasn't even known by anybody, as far as I can tell, in this country, except perhaps South African OTs. Um, who kind of kept it to themselves, but nobody knew about this in two thousand and until two thousand and five. Okay, well, okay, if you say no. that, then that's from two thousand and five <laughs> till now. Then yeah. that's, that's quite a uh, it's massive. massive. Shift, so yeah. some trusts—it's the only model they will use. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many trusts, and there's in, you know independent mm-hmm. um, service providers as well. But there's a lot. There's probably twenty, twenty-five. Would you say that does it require the whole like uh, um, MDT to take it up for it to work, or have a, at least have an understanding of it for it to work best, or would it if you've got a small team of OTs, two, two three people, or, or OT assistant, would they still work in this? Still work yeah, the it depends way? on the context. If 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 clients, if the service for the client really needs a whole MDT approach. Um, where everyone's working towards the same kind of outcomes, it's much better if the whole team has some knowledge. In fact, I'm going up to York uh, next week to do some training there um, for nurses and psychiatrists and psychologists in the community. Mm. So certainly, if everyone's got an understanding, you are likely to get better outcomes. But there are services where that's not necessary and the OTs do their thing and, and that's all, all they need. So like community learning disabilities where OTs are going yeah. and they're doing yeah. assessments. But then in their reports and their recommendations, they can be very clear about what support packages or, or is needed or what kind of um, input or support a client needs. Mm. So, yeah, if it all depends on, on the setting. Okay.
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I've, I'm beginning to understand it even even more now than I did before. I mean, I've, I've we've learned about it uh, at university. Um, when you're in university, everything is like yeah, it's <laughs> just another thing. <laughs> it's just another it? thing. You're <laughs> like, or, like when and then when you qualify, which, which one should I pick? Which one is the best one mm. for this person? Because you're so black and white in your in your thinking. But now, actually, you can be a bit more. Well, yeah, I feel like I'm a little bit more fluid in my thinking. I don't have to, you know, have, just because this person. Do you know why that this. is Quaker? It's because I, I you've, <laughs> you've grown in level of creative ability. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that, yeah, me, yeah. No, I suppose that's what it is. is. You, when yeah, you learn definitely. something, then you learn the next, the next thing. Yeah. No, it's so it's a, it's a, yeah. What I'll say to newly qualifiers, I don't get. It's hard. It's hard not to be black and white thinking because you want to mm. do it right. You want to do your best at that time. But actually, mm. <laughs> that that might not reap the result mm. that you want to for it to, for it to reap for that person in that particular moment. Um, but that's something I've been definitely thinking about uh, models of practice because I really want to push occupational therapy in uh, in my service anyway, um, and also doing, by doing these uh, podcasts, hopefully people understand occupational therapy a bit more better. Um, has there been any criticism of the model, any um, negative feedback from occupational therapists or from um, wider MDT uh, members? And I don't kind of... think so. I think people find the language difficult to begin with because each level has a, a name to name it. Mm -hmm. So there's a word that describes your motivation. Um, so on the third level, it's self-presentation, because okay. your motivation is literally, literally to have a go at things. So you present yourself and you go and talk to people and you want to make friends, you want to have a go at this, you want to go to the park. So you'll literally present yourself in different situations and have a go. Mm -hmm. So that's the term for the for the motivation, and then the the action or the abilities that go with that is called explorative, because you're exploring and finding out what you can do. And um, so some people find the the words, the terminology, a bit difficult to begin with. But I think that that's changing over time as more and more people are familiar with the model. Okay. And I certainly would recommend that the occupational therapists keep their terminology. So I've not changed it at all for the MDT training next week. Okay, that's what I was going to say. Is it? Mm. Do we have to to make it more um, legible for other people to understand it? If, if we want other people to understand it, um, do we have to like change it, or or is it that you have to have a good understanding so you can, you can explain it to your? You need to have a good understanding. You don't have to use the terms with clients any okay. more than you would use Moho terms with clients. You know, you use you, you talk with clients with the words that are the most helpful, mm. but uh, no, why don't change it? Because then you're going into this meek, quiet, <laughs> apologetic <laughs> occupational therapist mode. No, be loud and proud. Yeah, this yeah. is our theory. Yeah. This is from us. This is what it means. And if you think about it and you use it um, and you try you can learn it too and we can make a contribution to your knowledge yeah. and and certainly uh, other disciplines absolutely get the model of creativity because it just describes the usual course of development as you describe the levels they can see their clients in those levels yeah. they know exactly what i'm talking about and they appreciate in fact I remember a consultant psychiatrist saying to me once Thank you, he said, because finally I can see that there's some theory behind occupational therapy. Okay. 
that's, that's, that's... So they, they, why? Don't hide the theory. Use, use the terminology. Um, it's ours. This is our contribution. Don't change it. Oh, that's, that's good yeah. to hear. It's just, I, just, I just think that sometimes you're bombarded with so many words, especially when you're going to university. And you read and you think all oh, these occupation friendly words, and, mm. and so you you, some, you get muddled with that sometimes. Um, uh, mm. But yeah, no, you're, you're right. So if you have a good understanding, obviously you're not really scared to like explain it um, more than to people that don't really know of it. Um, how has uh, the model developed over the time that you've been part of it? Like from from finding out about it. Um, actually, on that point, how, how did you find out about it? <laughs> so yeah, because it's, it's, if no one knew about it in 2005, how did you manage to come oh, across it? Oh, an, <laughs> another little chance encounter. Okay. Yeah, I was teaching at the Essex School of OT and I ran into an occupation, a South African occupational mm. therapist. So for people listening, the significance of South Africa is that Vona de Toy was South African and this model has come from South Africa. So that's that OT called Carla. She was talking to me about how ineffective she thought the British OTs were, oh. particularly in mental health. You must have thought, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, I thought, mm, it's a bit rude. Um, but yeah, she said, you, you don't really know what you're doing and you can't, you don't seem to know how to work with people who are really, really unwell. And I thought, you know, she, that hit... Um, a note with me because I knew in my practice yeah. just like I've described to you I didn't know what to do with those people and she said I can work with anybody and I can bring around a change and know that it's me that's done that and I thought that's extraordinary so I came out of education and went into forensic practice and that's where I tried the model out then okay. and then over time I don't the model ha has changed a little bit and very recently Quaker because there is now the very first full text on the model being published. Oh. Um, just literally in weeks ago. Amazing. So, um, coming back to criticisms of the model is that it was never in full anywhere. So some of the key concepts like task concept or effort, what is effort, were not defined and explained anywhere mm. and that's hugely problematic because it, then it's open to interpretation. Yeah, yeah. So um, there is now a full textbook that explains absolutely everything and that's, that's the first time the model has ever been in full. And it's been written um, looking at contemporary, you know, more contemporary research and mm. understandings about mm. things. So it has grown up itself, um, taking on board the knowledge that we've developed since Vona de Toy's time. Um, and, it's, and it's used in contexts that Vona de Toy never envisaged. She never, according to her colleagues who knew her well, envisaged that it could be used with people with learning disabilities. Okay. It's just not something she thought. But it actually now it's used with everybody. Yeah, I was just about to say, because uh, I suppose if, if it was mainly used in South Africa, that's a, uh, thinking about culture. Yes. Um, it's very different, yeah. Mm. We, we're still humans, but it's, it's a very different um, yeah. way of doing things in, in South Africa or any other part of the world. I know it's used quite a lot in Japan. It's used well. um, some parts um, of Japan and now also in Singapore. Okay, so that's yeah. that's a that's yeah. a quite yeah. different culture. You've got, you've got very westernized culture in, um, mm. in the UK, then Eastern um, culture and then African culture. How yeah. has, that, has that made, would you say that's made the model a bit more accessible to 
people here and also people that we work with in different settings in terms of culture as well. What do you, what do you mean made it more accessible? Like, uh, because sometimes, I know most models of practice have, have uh, something to do with culture, but Absolutely, we have to make yeah. it appropriate. But because it was developed in in a different, completely different yeah. culture, how would we manage to change it uh, to use oh, it in a, like a Western culture? How is it yeah, used yeah. in an Eastern culture? Because yes. three quite different. I don't think it's needed to change. I think it actually stands up because it talks about, it describes human beings. Yeah. And then you, for each individual, will understand their level, but you'll understand what life, the meaning of life to that person mm. within their culture and within their own societies mm -hmm. is something that you have to do for absolutely every individual. So the model doesn't change. Okay. Um, I think that for, for our colleagues, particularly in Asia, there's been some challenges around um, how to explain the model to other people so I think in Japan historically there's been a lot of stigma around people being in different levels okay. because historically if you're low level then you are in a way in this very stigmatized way a lower human yes. being okay. than higher and people on the low levels then you know got poor services and so they're quite reluctant to use terminology around levels or to indicate that someone is higher than somebody else mm. but they found their own way to explain that so explaining it in different cultures um, is, is a challenge but I think that's the same for, for everything but the model hasn't had to change mm. I think it's very culturally sensitive mm. um, just quickly can you talk like can you give a very quick uh, uh, case study type Thing on one of the one of the levels can you, if you pick one level and how what the person presented I know you've given an example of maybe someone that um like when you first started as, as your greatest achievement when the person okay, did it. yeah but one if you maybe you, you talk With about self-presentation if someone okay someone that you've come across or someone that one of the people uh, okay. has worked before. so self-presentation is our biggest client group most of our clients in mental health certainly are on this level and they're kind of between the more unwell, let's say, the more unwell people. So people who are very, very psychotic mm. tend to be on the second level. Mm. And people who are more stable and are going back to work and picking up their lives tend to be on the fourth level. Fourth level. So the self-presentation level is the third. They're kind of, yeah, they're kind of not really ill, but they're not quite ready to take on the full full-blown demands of life so they're our biggest client group and they tend to for whatever reason diagnosis or personality or whatever um, tend to be motivated to do things they want to have a go at doing things like shop for themselves come to OT they often want to do a lot of different activities but they're not terribly good at doing them for different reasons. So it might be that they've lost awareness of what's the socially acceptable way of doing things or the right way of doing things. So they they just kind of do it and they can be untidy or they're talking about things, uh, topics that are really not acceptable topics to be talking about in this situation. Or they're talking over the top of people, their social skills are poor. And it tends to be due to anxiety or they're very focused on their own needs. Okay. So the clue is that they're called self 
presentation. They were very self-level. So some, yeah, again, yesterday I was talking to someone, they said, you know, about a client who just talked and talked and talked, this huge monologue about his life and his interests and absolutely no realisation that everybody around them is bored to death or any thought that somebody else might want to join in the conversation. They're very focused on themselves. Um, they've got quite poor, they've got poor coping skills and they tend to have problems with executive functioning. Okay. So things around planning, getting organised, problem solving, um, complex decision making, all of these things are, are difficult, which makes it problematic then for them to be living in the community with the full demands of life. Um, so we know that they don't, people on this level don't tend to manage, live independently in the community successfully. Okay. So, um, how would you maybe, in, in that story, the things that you describe, if someone p- presents to you like that, how would you go about um, assessing them to, to, to make sure that that's actually the level that they are at? Okay, so the or even prior, to, or even yeah. prior to that, actually, prior to that, if someone came to me, um, I might have I might have an initial idea of like, definitely this person fits into this level, but how mm. how do I confirm? Yeah, so you'll get a sense of someone's level quite quickly once you know the levels. The levels are very very different mm. from each other, so you'll get a sense of someone's level quite quickly, and then the assessment is actually quite complex. But you need to see the person doing as many different activities as possible okay. in as many different situations as possible, because. Uh, one particular activity people c- can have as a very habituated activity that they can do almost without thinking, mm-hmm. which makes them look very competent yeah, at high yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. But then ask them to do something they've never done before and you can see them pretty much collapse in front of you. Mm-hmm. The anxiety raises and they can't plan it, they can't work out the sequencing and so on. So you need to see people doing as many different things as possible in as many different situations as possible because different situations require different behaviours. I suppose this is when, the, when you're talking about the motivation and the ability comes involved because they might um, have the ability but they're just either not motivated to do it or, yes. or have the motivation but yes. the ability just doesn't work. Yes. So you <clears> need to see that. Um, and preferably see them doing things around other people because you need to see their ability to relate to people and that social aspect. And a key thing is to do see them doing something unfamiliar that they've not done before. Okay. Because unfamiliar activities um, require skills of you that, un- that familiar ones don't necessarily. Okay. So you need to be able to understand the, the task or the activity you need to be able to follow instructions or be able to get the sequence right. You need to manage your anxiety because unfamiliar things tend to raise anxiety because mm-hmm. we've never done it before yeah, yeah. and maybe it will all go wrong. Um, it needs to be something that will, is challenging so they need to uh, manage their anxiety around that. Um, and it impose perhaps something that's quite hard, a little bit hard for them to do. So they have to manage their frustration, they have to put in effort and try hard. Okay, okay. And that's when you see people's true ability, if you like. So you get a sense, you think there might be, let's say, the self-presentation level, and then you give them an activity that is right, that the right skill set for self-presentation level, but, it, but it, with a but challenge. challenge yeah. So you want to see them stretch. Okay. And that usually confirms pretty much that you have, you've got the level right or maybe you need to change things. And I suppose that's the kind of skills that 
uh, as a physical therapist, we have like by, by watching people, looking at what they're doing, and mm. getting, getting all those things components that you said you can. And that's a skill that I, I don't know. Maybe of well, other professions don't have that level yeah. of skill. That's it's that's absolutely that's, occupational yeah, yeah, therapy yeah, in a box. Yeah, yeah. Very little model of creativity forces you to be an occupational <laughs> therapist. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't do activity with people, then it's not the model for you. Okay. If, you know, if you if you don't think like a or need to grade or do any of those things, and it's not a model for you. Okay, so you need to have a in your in your toolbox. You need to have a, a load of activities that you can then match to. Yeah, definitely. To you people. need to be able to grade quickly. Oh, okay. Um. So, uh, last couple of questions. How have you maintained your motivation over the twenty eight years that you've been an occupational therapist, and also uh, being part of this uh, model? Mm. How have, you, how have you maintained your motivation? To be honest, Craig, if you're looking back, I don't know. I don't know how <laughs> I've got this far. I don't know. I was always, you know, very passionate about occupational therapy, particularly, you know, providing a good quality service and good quality education. Mm. The quality has always been good and I've, you know, worked hard. Um, I just love the profession. It's just been the best thing for me. Mm. As I've worked more for myself and I'm more involved in training rather than clinical practice I guess and as I've got older um, my passion is is waning um, a bit but I don't know I've just never lost sight of what a brilliant profession it is and I think seeing working with the clients it's always the clients that gave me job satisfaction if you any problems working in the NHS in health and social care it tends to be staff (laughs) (laughs) it tends to be colleagues not the clients the clients I've just always found wonderful and they've always been my big drive that's uh, that's that's, I'm guessing that's the advice you give to uh, people starting out now or people who are maybe not feeling the profession at present uh, because you go through difficult times Mm. um, especially if you're moving jobs and you're not you don't really feel particularly confident in that um special specialist area um so if people are interested in the model if people want to get find out more about it can you tell us where to get the new book from or, or that can you give us some <laughs> if if it, yeah if anyone wants to do a, a little bit of training around there well, how can they yes how can they so out? your first stop i would recommend is to go to the Vony de Troy model of creativity foundation okay. uk okay. for uk-based occupational okay. therapists because they provide lots of information. They've got a members area. They've got a forum full of resources from practice, all sorts of stuff. And it's through that foundation that you can also buy some of the texts, which you can also get on Amazon. So there's one on applying the model in acute mental health practice, and there's one on applying the model in learning disabilities practice in the UK. And you can get those from the foundation through Amazon. Um, the foundation also has permission to print and sell the, the new book, okay. which I know they haven't got printed as yet because it's a very, very new, but it will be through them that you'll be able to get that book. And did you, did you um, edit that or did you write that whole thing yourself? Yeah, so the, the, <laughs> it is a bit weird, but the model uh, is authored now by four people, okay. me being one of them, which is really such massive, a privilege yeah. yeah it's massive from when <laughs> I came from. yeah so it's written by Dane van der Raden who's probably the expert in the world in it and she was actually one of Ola Toy's OT students originally makes sense yeah um, Darlene Castellan who um, developed an outcome measure for the model and Pat DeVitt who's 
um, written a chapter on the model in a, in a small book for years, mm. and again is another expert, and then and there's me. So we are authors of the model. It's really mm. peculiar, but yeah. And you're going to be referenced for the next ten years in university. I can see all, all students <laughs> writing that down. What can I say about it? That's what happens. You find yeah. that book that. Because obviously it's about the model, but I can imagine it's also about occupational therapy and in general about humans, like you said as well. So it's going to yeah. be, I, I look forward to reading it. Yeah, um, well, I guess coming back to the question about achievement, that's a massive achievement. Like well. And was really important to do because the older, the OTs with the real expertise, like Dane van der Raden, are, reti- are retirement mm. age mm. and are, are getting old. And if we hadn't captured their knowledge, it would have been lost, which would have been tragic. So. It was a great thing to do. That so I suppose we need more uh, younger occupational therapists to jump on yes, board now absolutely. because they're going to be like yeah. the, what they call like the, the culture carriers, you know, <laughs> they carry on for the next generation, next yeah. generation, next generation. Yeah. Right. So the main thing is to visit the website, which I'll put mm-hmm. in, in the link for people. Is there a view? Guys, got a Twitter or Facebook or anywhere like social media. Uh, the foundation's got a Twitter account. Yeah. yeah, yeah um, yeah. off the top of my head, I, I can't tell you what okay. it is. I'll find it. No. I think, no, I think it's. I think it is VDT Mocker F UK. To my embarrassment, okay, okay. because the last three letters is not quite what you'd <laughs> hope. But it is VDT Mocker F UK. <laughs> yes. Okay. Fair <laughs> I'll um, I'll put I'll find all the information and now and um, I'll put in the people can contact you. Yeah. If people can, are people able to contact you? Um, they can contact me. Not anything, of course, but anything yeah. to do with the model or anything about what yes, you Yes, they what can. You so I'm, you can, email is the easiest. Yeah. Wendy at ICAN, which is I C A N hyphen UK.com. I do have a website which is um, just about to be updated. So that's www.ican UK.com. Okay, perfect. I'll get all that information. In the links and then thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and I'll speak to you very soon. Great, thanks. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I found it fascinating sitting down with Dr. Willis. Show we're talking about the one of these one model of creative ability. Remember, if you want to find out any more about it um, or how to get in touch with um, Dr. Wendy Show with itself. I'll put all the details in the uh, description. Thank you so much for joining me again. And I hope you keep subscribing and listening to this podcast. I hope you're finding it helpful. Please hit me up with any feedback. I always appreciate people giving feedback and talking about what's been discussed in the podcast. So please feel free to contact me if you have any questions or any suggestions of what you would like um, to be discussed in the podcast. Thank you so much and take care.